0: I'm Janae Cummings, and welcome to Profiles on WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers, and get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is Eric Dagens, NPR's first full-time TV critic. A career journalist, he came to NPR from the Tampa Bay Times, where he served as TV media critic and in other roles for nearly 20 years. Dagens is also the author of Race Bader, How the Media Wields Dangerous Words to Divide a Nation. And his writing has appeared in the New York Times Online, Salon Magazine, CNN.com, The Washington Post, and a host of other news outlets across the country. In 2009, he was named one of Ebony Magazine's Power 150, a list that also included Oprah Winfrey and PBS host Gwen Eiffel. The IU grad also serves on the board of educators, journalists, and media experts who select the George Foster Peabody Awards for Excellence in Electronic Media. Eric, thanks for being here today.
1: Happy to be here.
0: For most, when they think TV critic, they think of someone who has the great incredible luxury of being paid to watch TV and talk about it but they I think are you, correct
1: I think you said
0: that it's actually a bit deeper than that and deeper than that and oh, in that a 2013 that. profile you said that your job as a TV critic and correspondent is to provide a window into how our society works to really to tell the story of us what If anything, are the fall TV shows saying about American society and what we value, fear and appreciate right now? Oh,
1: boy. No, no, I, I, you know, I was kidding earlier. But, yeah, um, I do think that how we recreate and what we find compelling in entertainment tells us something about ourselves. Now, when we look at the fall slate, I think it tells us more about the TV industry than it tells us about America because we have to wait and see how people respond to these shows once they debut. And uh, we're just getting a sense now of what people are watching and what people are rejecting. So I would take a little more time to sort of figure out what that means. But uh, in terms of what it, it says about the TV industry, there's a lot of retrenchment going on. Like it felt like last season, there were a lot of shows. The shows that were most successful, especially, I'm thinking of shows like Blackish, Fresh Off the Boat, Empire, Jane the Virgin. These were all shows that were had very specific points of view. They were fresh, different. They featured uh, non-white families and non-white characters. And they were very much about things that we had not seen on television before. This year, it's all about retrenchment. You know, the... the the most notable show before they debuted and we saw what the shows were like was The Muppets, which is, a, you know, these are characters that have been on TV in one form or another for 50 years. So I don't know why the TV industry responded to a season that was successful because they experimented and they pushed the envelope with a season that had stuff that was retreads stuff that felt like uh we'd seen it before, stuff starring characters that had been on TV for decades. I, I don't really understand why they did that. But what we can see now in the way that the audience is responding to it is that, you know, they're not that interested. They don't find they you know, they don't they're not rejecting the shows, but they're not passionate about them because the shows themselves are not works of passion often. You know, they're they seem to feel like business deals. That became TV shows because, hey, we own the rights to Minority Report, so let's do a TV version of it. Or, you know, hey, you know, we're Disney and we own the rights to the Muppets, so, you know, let's do a sitcom starring the Muppets. And I think what we're facing right now is a media industry that is very uncertain about its future. Um, They don't know uh, where their viewers are going or how to hold on to them, especially in network television. They're worried about um, being able to maintain their profits and maintain their hold on the American zeitgeist. And so they're, do- they're going with things that are safe, and they're going with things uh, that on paper uh, look like they might be easy hits. And what they're finding is that the audience's taste is a little more sophisticated than that, and they're going to they're gonna have to swing for the fences a little more.
0: I think a war has really kind of raged on between broadcast television and cable t- television for the last few years. But lately, it seems that there is a massive difference between network TV and prestige TV and hmm. never the twain shall meet. Hmm. Um, is this war over? Is it's a war. Is, hmm. has, ne- has non-network television simply won a temporary battle?
1: <laughs> I don't know if I'd characterize it so much as a war. I think... In, in some ways, it's a war. I, I think what is happening is that the definition of success is such for network television. The level of viewership they have to get for shows is so high that it is harder for them to take chances in the way that cable does. So that's part of the problem. Uh, the other problem is that network TV isn't funded directly by the people who watch network television. It's funded by the advertisers who place ads inside the shows. So they can only do TV shows that advertisers will allow their brands to be associated with, right? So if you do a show like, like Stars has this show called Ash versus the Evil Dead, Mm -hmm. right? Now, if you're familiar with the Evil Dead uh, cult horror series, it's these three movies, incredibly bloody, incredibly explicit it's just you know it it they're very cult hits, you know, um, they're not anything that you would want little children to see or um, they they were sort of considered the the ugly stepchildren of the horror genre, but they became cult hits. So stars decided to do a TV show with all of the with the director and the producers and the stars, you know, from the original movies. and it's a very funny, very explicit, very gory series. It's very fun. But I can't think of McDonald's wanting to have its brand associated with a TV series where um, someone gets a a butcher knife stuck through their hand. Right. Right. And it's played for laughs, you know, or where uh, a zombie attacks somebody and they cut off their head with a chainsaw that they have mounted onto a stump on their hand, which actually happens in an episode, right? So part of what limits network television is they can only create the shows that advertisers want to have their brands associated with. So they can't be as adventurous um, as FX or as AMC, these cable channels, and they certainly can't be as adventurous as HBO or Stars or Showtime, these premium cable channels that you pay money to access. So... If there is a war, it's a really uneven one Mm -hmm. and is weighted and tilted towards the cable side because they're able to advance material that the networks could never get away with. Cable television, they get money from two different ways. They sell ads, they do, but they also get money from the cable systems that carry the cable channels. So if an advertiser is a little upset and doesn't want to advertise on one of their shows, they still have another revenue stream to kind of make up for that. So it's easier for them to do more risque stuff. And then when you talk about HBO or Showtime, all their money comes from the subscribers paying them directly. So as long as they're doing a show that advertiser or that uh, viewers want to see and will pay $18 a month to see, then they can put whatever they want on and, you know, rest assured that their subscribers are engaged. So that's what accounts for the difference in the material that you see. So I don't think the only reason I want to see it as a war is because they're really playing different games. Mm -hmm. They earn money in different ways, and they have to appeal to their consumers in different ways. So network TV's problem, is that um, particularly high-end consumers have a certain level of sophistication and experimentation that they expect from television, and it's harder and harder for network television to offer that and still appeal to advertisers and also draw enough viewers to really be successful in a totally ad-supported world.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm really curious about the recent influx of Hollywood actors and directors into uh, cable television. Um, I think the most famous example of late has been Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey and True Detective. Sure. Um, but another that really stands out to me is The Nick, a show on Cinemax. that's directed by Oscar winner Steven Soderbergh and starring Clive Owen. Mm-hmm. Um, here's a clip from your recent commentary on Soderbergh's ac- approach to the show.
1: Soderbergh's visuals are as adventurous as the sounds and words. He often shoots with a handheld camera, moving close to actors in crucial scenes. Tonight's episode opens with the camera tracking closely behind nurse Lucy Elkins, peering over her shoulder as she walks the hospital's corridors. In her mind, she recalls a letter she wrote to Thackeray that describes life at the hospital and sets the stage for the new season.
0: Life just goes on, but not for me, not without you.
1: It's tough to imagine any of this making sense without the mastery of Soderbergh, who turned away from movies to bring an indie film director's sensibility to television. Boy, that guy sounds smart. <laughs>
0: what lessons can the networks take from these more Hollywood approaches to filming? I mean, they're... Sure. they're, they're competing in in different realms, of course. But surely there are lessons that can be learned here.
1: Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that I noticed after I did that piece was how much of network television especially is just shots of people talking. You know, you watch Law & Order and it's people talking in a squad room. And then it's people talking on a murder scene. And then it's people talking in an interrogation room. And then it's people talking in a courtroom. And it's like, you know, you don't get these sort of lush... Um, shots uh, where there's long periods where you're just looking at the image and people aren't necessarily talking, or it's a voiceover and you're watching a character move through a setting. Or um, you know, Soderbergh will get in there with a handheld camera and he'll be very close to his subjects, and and you'll you'll feel as if you're doing what they're doing. He'll put a camera on the forehead of an actor while he's acting out being in a fight, and you'll feel as if you're right in there throwing punches uh, with the character. And so, uh, what you understand, come to understand when you watch The Nick, or you watch Fargo, or you watch, uh, True Detective, you watch these shows that try to be Olive Kittredge, the miniseries on HBO. Mm -hmm. These shows are trying to be movies brought to television. And so they have a wider visual palette. Um, the shots are more ambitious. There are more stretches of programming where people don't say anything and and the story is told in visuals. Uh, That's another thing that network television, I think, is afraid to do sometimes is have long sequences where the images tell the story. And, uh, you know, as a viewer, you have to pay a little closer attention to see what's happening on the screen to know exactly what's happening in the story. Those are all sort of signposts and hallmarks of great filmmaking. And people like Soderbergh and David Fincher um, are learning that they can bring that vocabulary to television, certain kinds of television, and it can be successful. And indeed, you know, we're in this entertainment world where if you want to go see a movie in a theater, you know, you're paying nine to fifteen bucks, you know, you're driving out there, you're dealing with parking, you know, you're you're going into a movie theater and you're sitting next to somebody on their cell phone or somebody who won't stop talking. And, you know, at home you may have a TV, is high definition with a 55-inch screen and a surround sound system. And you know what? For an intimate experience like a movie like uh, Mr. Holmes or, uh, you know, a movie like Love Actually, it might be more fun to just sit at home and watch it. And I, I think consumers are deciding that there are some kinds of cinematic experiences they can have at home. And they would be just as fulfilling. And then filmmakers are seeing this and saying, you know what? I don't have to convince a studio to give me $60 million to make an intimate romantic comedy or to make, you know, Behind the Candelabra, Soderbergh's biopic of uh, Liberace. Instead, um, you know, I'll get a bit of money from HBO. uh, I'll I'll make it uh, for television. And more people will see it. And people will experience it in their homes in a way that they probably already want to do anyway. So I think what we're seeing is we're seeing projects move to television because it's a natural space for them to be in. Uh, It's where people want to consume them. And ultimately, the audience is choosing uh, where a lot of these projects land because people have so much choice over where to experience their media. And they're saying certain things I want to see on my phone, certain things I want to see in my tablet, certain things I want to see in my home theater, and then certain things I will pay uh, to see in a movie theater.
0: There are a lot of programs that have multiple directors executing head writer's vision. Um, Mad Men immediately springs to mind with John Hamm and John Slattery mm-hmm. directing quite a, quite a few episodes. Does that kind of switching impact shows for good or for ill? Is it a good thing?
1: Well, no, because again, the, the traditional structure of television is that um, the head writer is the person who uh, sort of is a caretaker of the creative vision of the show. I mean, that's again, that's one reason why visuals will be more standard on a TV show because you have directors coming in and out. and you know, a different person has to direct each episode of a network television show, especially because generally because they have to make 22 to 25 of them. On a given week, you'll have one episode, that's wrapping up post-production and they're about to finish the episode so that they can air it. You have another episode that is in the middle of shooting with a different director, so the cast is working on that. And then you have a third episode that is being readied for production by yet another director who's figuring out like where they're going to shoot stuff and what sets they need and all that kind of stuff that doesn't necessarily have to involve the cast or even necessarily the head writer. Um, They're prepping that episode for production. So in any given week, you'll have three episodes in various stages of production. Each of those episodes has a different director. Now, in order to have a single director do all those episodes, you can only make one at a time. And that slows down the process, and it would make it really hard to do 22 or 25 episodes of a TV show. So what ends up happening is the head writer is the person who ensures the continuity, and you bring in different directors for every episode because you kind of need to have that many people involved just to stay on production. Mm -hmm. And even shows like uh, Game of Thrones, uh, which are highly stylized and highly... uh, They use a lot of film techniques. They spend a lot of time uh, filming the episodes, and they use a lot of special effects. Even that show has different directors on every episode Uh, in part for those uh, logistical reasons because it still takes a long time to complete an episode and you have to have a director kind of see it through to the end. I guess True Detective, I think, is the most recent example I can think of of a highly stylized, besides the Soderbergh stuff, too, the Nick, of a highly stylized TV show where one director directed every episode. Uh, Even even with the high-end TV shows, that doesn't happen often.
0: Okay. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Janae Cummings. Our guest today is Eric Dagens, NPR's first full-time TV critic and the author of Race Bader, How the Media Wields Dangerous Words to Divide a Nation. Dagens is a 1990 graduate of Indiana University. One thing we're seeing more of is casting against type. It's given us Brian Cranston in Breaking Bad, Kerry Russell in The Americans, Michael Chiklis in The Shield. Um, but I can't really recall this happening with any actor of color until I saw Bokeem Woodbine in this, this season of Fargo. Um, Woodbine is usually a gangbanger or a cop. He's always hot-tempered, but not in Fargo, which is actually a show that makes me kind of proud to own a television. Um, here's a clip of Woodbine and Ted Danson in a, what I think is a gem of a scene.
1: I'm going to radio ahead and make sure you make it out of state. If not, I'm going to put out a APB and have you boys round it up. And then we'll talk again. You understand? I do.
0: And isn't that a minor miracle? The state of the world today the level of conflict and... Misunderstanding that two men could stand on a lonely road in winter and talk
1: calmly and rationally. While all around them, people were losing their mind. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) It's intense. Can this performance pave the way for more actors of color?
1: Hmm. hmm. I don't. You know. I, I wish I had thought more about that question because I hesitate to say that that Bokim Woodbine is the only recent actor of color to be cast against type. My my hunch is that that's not true. But uh, but I would say that that's a great example of you know you you have a show like Fargo. It's set in a place that doesn't have a lot of ethnic diversity, and yet they have figured out ways. Uh, they have a Native American character also who 's very compelling, although that character more closely follows to the stereotypes that we have about Native Americans in terms of you know he 's a great tracker and um you know he 's silent and strong and almost mystical in his ability to sort of figure out the white man and track down people and act as a uh, as an enforcer for this uh, um, for this gang and in fargo but they have figured out ways to get non-white characters in the show in ways that are distinctive, in ways that are compelling, and in ways that uh, in, in Bokeem Woodbine's character, Mike Milligan, uh, sort of uh, go against what you might expect from a character of color. So I like um, I like all that stuff. And they didn't just say, hey, it's a show that's set in Fargo, so everybody has to be white and just leave it there. Um, they used it as an excuse to create some characters that you didn't expect, and I wish more shows uh, would do that. Now, I, I would also say though that we have come to get used to seeing some characters of color in roles that we didn't see them in even five years ago. So to look at a character like Olivia Pope on Scandal, to look at a character like Violet Davis's character Annalise on How to Get Away with Murder, um, to, to to look at um, the character that Megan Good is playing on uh, Minority Report. To look at the character that was the female character, I forget the actress's name on uh, Sleepy Hollow. Uh, Nicole Afri-
0: Bahari. Yeah,
1: Nicole Bahari. You know, they're playing the kinds of characters that we didn't get, we didn't see black women get to play even five years ago. Right. But now we're used to it. You know, so now we don't think that's casting against type, but just, you know, three years ago or four years ago, that was casting against type. So hopefully what happens is we uh, we see this actor excel and people start to look at. Uh, young actors of color in a different way, and and give them the chance to to have the kind of range and breadth uh, that we've seen white actors have. I mean, you know Dominic West, this British actor, was allowed to play a working class Baltimore cop on The Wire, and it opened up all kinds of avenues to him. Uh, you know, as a as an actor. Um, you know, we even look at um, the guy from Homeland, Damien Lewis. Yeah, uh, yeah. So we look at Damian Lewis again, another Britisher who uh, played American first in Band of Brothers and then played an American soldier in Homeland and now is playing, you know, a a hedge fund guy in a new Showtime drama called Billions. So, you know, we've seen white actors get this sort of casting-against-type sort of uh, opportunities, and now it's a pleasure to see characters of color also getting those because, frankly, it's kind of boring to see a character pop up on a TV show and see that it's a young black man, and you feel like you already know that character's story before they even open their mouth. Right. You know, it's much more interesting and surprising to see a character of color and wonder, well, you know, what's that guy doing there? Or man, I wonder what he's gonna be about? Or, or man, what's that? What's that story gonna be into? So uh, yeah, you know, uh, it, it is a great development, and you're right, it is. I think it's a pivotal moment, but we've had some groundbreaking moments before, and now we've come to accept them as sort of the new reality. So mm-hmm. I hope that's what happens here, too.
0: I'd like to switch gears a bit. Um, well, I guess we brought it up a bit to Empire on yeah. Fox. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a ratings powerhouse with a significant black audience. Um, but I've found that there are many in the black community who've boycotted the show because they think it promotes negative stereotypes. Um, but it's also come through with some really forward storylines related to gender and sexuality. Um, here's a recent clip.
1: Stapleson passed a on me. What? They claim that I am quote unquote too narrow of an artist to fill their stadium. That's cold word for gay. And I'm sorry, dad, that's because empire keeps on marketing me as a gay artist, but that's what you are. That's not what I am. I'm gay and I'm an artist, but that don't make me a gay artist. And you of all people should understand that. Lucius
0: Lyon has come a long way in accepting,
1: <laughs> I know. in I accepting
0: know. His, we're still not his, far still not <laughs> <really>? far <laughs> enough, but a long way to say yeah. you're a gay artist and, and that's yeah. how we're going to promote you. Mm-hmm. But, um, is, is Empire having a subtle impact, maybe, on Americans out there who are sure. audiences who are watching this and maybe kind of absorbing this change, this transition? Well,
1: first I'd say I don't know if there's anything subtle about Empire. <laughs>
0: <laughs> You're quite right. You know, You're quite right.
1: Every, every storyline uh, on that show hits you over the head with a sledgehammer, but I, I, I hope so. You know, what has always been compelling to me, or one of the things that's always been compelling to me about Empire is that it is putting a lot of discussions on the table that are happening um, in black families and happening in black communities across the country. But we still sort of have this reflexive, you know, we don't want to put our business out there kind of attitude sometimes about it. And we may be having, I, I, I think a lot of black families are coming to accept their gay members in ways that they haven't in years past. And that discussion is happening, but it's just not happening out in public the way Empire is presenting it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's part of what fuels Empire's success is that Lee Daniels, the co-creator of the show, I think has been very deliberate about taking discussions that are happening inside the black community and putting them in the public space with these characters. In, and, and, and making them a little unreal by making them about these characters that are larger than life. Uh, But in the end, you know, the story is sort of coming to terms with your gay son or your gay daughter or um, figuring out how to deal with that kid in your family that seems to be a hair's breadth away from being a thug who's going to be stuck in jail the rest of his life or, uh, you know, dealing with that recalcitrant father who just can't seem to get with the times. You know, every family deals with that, let alone Uh, Black families and their unique way of dealing with it. So it's, it's a pleasure to see Empire kind of put that on the table. And I feel like people who just look at the fact that these characters evoke stereotypes and don't see that these characters move beyond those stereotypes and are fleshed out people and are acting like fleshed out people, that, to me, they're, the, the people who are rejecting the show without really fully experiencing the show and understanding that part of it, I think they're missing out. And uh, if it was just a bunch of empty stereotypes, I'd be the first critic to say, you know, this this uh, show is doing more damage than than good. But I, I think what's happening is they are sort of evoking stereotypes. They are kind of resonating with these classic stereotypes of black people. But they move beyond those Stereotypes to deliver us characters that are much more than that, in the same way that the sopranos started with stereotypes about italian Americans mm-hmm. and then kind of moved beyond that and I knew uh, some Italians who were really upset about the sopranos, and they also boycotted the show and uh, and I said at the time that I felt like they had a point, but The characters move beyond the simple stereotypes to become more complex figures, to tell more complex stories. And if you kind of close your eyes to that and just say, well, I don't like the stereotype of the Italian-American gangster, so I'm not going to watch the show. Well, you know, then you're going to miss out on characters that are well beyond uh, a stereotype.
0: Right. Earlier in the year, you had a conversation with NPR's Aaron Rath where he asked if networks will try to replicate Empire's success and if we're seeing the start of a new trend. I think we have a clip of that.
1: Well, I I certainly hope that it's the start of a trend where the networks say, if we reflect life the way it's being lived, then maybe uh, we'll have more success. Fox is one of the most desperate of the broadcast networks. Uh, They've had a lot of problems launching new shows. So they were the most open to trying new things. And indeed, I'm hoping that the networks will learn. If you present a world that looks like the world that we see when we step outside our front door, uh, maybe you'll be rewarded with an audience. And isn't that a great thing?
0: Can you elaborate a bit on that? Um, I don't think I know anyone quite living the Empire life, but unless we're talking about just the general themes that empire Well, again, yeah.
1: You know, I, I talked about, you know, discussions that are happening inside black families and inside black communities that aren't necessarily making it to the mainstream. Mm-hmm. One reason why the show has such a, a high black viewership is because black people see themselves in these characters. You know, they see the struggles that they're having as struggles that they're having, but they're writ large. They're writ on a, on, a, on a larger stage with these larger-than-life characters. So it's not necessarily that you know uh, a, a record company mogul who killed right. his best friend and went to jail for it for a minute and then got out. <laughs> but uh, you might know somebody who has had past troubles with the law and is trying to reconcile the attitude that got them incarcerated with trying to live a life that keeps them out of jail. Uh, or you know somebody, you might know somebody, or have a family member, somebody who's been in jail for a while and has come out and has to rejoin the family, like Cookie uh, Lion did. Or you, again, you know, a family that has a gay, um, you know, son or daughter or uncle or whatever, and is trying to be uh, more contemporary about how they accept that person into their family structure. Those are all sort of storylines that that Empire explores. What's unfortunate, I think, and I sort of alluded to this in my earlier answer, is that the networks haven't taken their cue from the success of Empire and and Blackish and Fresh Off the Boat, except to, in a very superficial way, have shows that have a lot of diverse characters in them. Mm-hmm. But they don't have a point of view that is about exploring what's unique and special and interesting about that culture. So you have ABC is going to do a version of Uncle Buck, the 90s movie, with an all-black cast as a TV show. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, who out there was saying, boy, TV would be so much better if only they did a version of Uncle Buck with black people. And so, you know, it's more like they've learned a lesson of, well, you know, if we put on shows with uh, non-white cast, people will watch them. If we put on shows with all-black casts, then black people will watch them. And for a short period of time, you might get that. Uh, But you won't have the kind of sustained success that Empire had, or that Blackish is having. Blackish is having an amazing second season, and I think uh, maybe one of the untold stories of the fall season is how strong the show has been, and and how they've been able to explore things like the way different generations use the N word in ways that are funny and, and, and that illuminate the subject and that talk about it in a way that we haven't talked about it before, and to have. You know, ABC respond to that and fresh off the boat by giving us Dr. Ken, this sitcom starring uh, Ken Jong from uh, the uh, Hangover movies as uh, an, auto, an auto, unorthodox uh, physician who's also a family man. And it is your typical by-the-number sitcom. The only character on the show who gets to be funny is him. And the, the situations are kind of silly and stupid. And, you know, it's just it's painful to watch mm-hmm. because the cast is talented but the writing's terrible. And I, I think in a way it's terrible on purpose because it's supposed to be a companion to a Tim Allen series that airs before it, but they, they have not learned the lesson of Fresh Off the Boat and Blackish, which is to bring a, a, a unique cultural perspective to that show and use that to inform the writing so that the show is unique and it's saying something about life that's unique. And it doesn't have to be about being an Asian family necessarily, but it does have to have a specific point of view that is not generic. Right. And I'm amazed that the networks in mass seem to have turned away from the lessons of the last season. And they're offering us these hosts of shows that don't feel uh, very inspired at all.
0: Blackish really surprised me when it first came on. I saw it had Anthony Anderson, that was an immediate turnoff, really. And, <laughs> right. But uh, and I saw a couple clips, and I think Tracy Ellis Ross made some very obvious jokes um, mm. about about her own heritage. And I was right. like, this isn't for me. Yeah. But a friend told me to DVR it just to give it a chance, and that was one where. I just kind of settled in and mm-hmm. really found that I identified with it far more than I ever could have imagined. And sure. I'm a fan these days. So
1: yeah, they've done a you know I think uh, part of it like the the sh- the name of the show uh, put off a lot of people. Blackish because I think they thought it was some white producer or network person came up with this the name Blackish. What did that mean? Blackish. Right. And I was at <laughs> uh, not to name drop, but I will. I was at a Creative Coalition event in Washington D.C. and uh, Anthony Anderson was there and Kenya Barris, the guy who co created the show with him, was there. And they were talking with April Ryan, who was a well-known uh, White House correspondent, uh, African-American. And she had just written a book. And, they, you know, they were they were talking and I was at the next table. And uh, he was asking her if she watched black And she said originally she boycotted the show because of the name. And he just kind of went off. He was kind of joking, but he kind of wasn't. And, and I could tell, you know, it kind of irritated him a little because I'm sure he hears that a lot, that people – Initially, didn't give the show a chance because they reacted badly to the name, or like you said, some of the early uh, promotion on the show emphasized the most obvious jokes. Because again, that's what networks know how to mm-hmm. do. You know, hey, you know, let's let's uh, let's emphasize the jokes that make this look like every other cookie cutter comedy. Because we don't want people to be threatened by the name of this show, Blackish, and we'll just reassure them that this is just good, wholesome sitcom comedy. But it's not. It's it's a really well done. Uh, You know, look at some of these issues, I mean, to the point where there's even some characters that are more stereotypical, like they they were having a discussion about the N-word and Anthony Anderson has this one, there's this one character who's sort of his friend at work, who's his, you know, more i don't know how you would say it but he's he's his more street wise friend and so his friend gets upset he's also african-american and he and uh one of the white guys at the table says something and then the guy pulls out a gun the black guy and puts it on the table <laughs> and you know in part you're like wow why he gotta have a gun but you know it very much fit in with that character and how that character responds to things so it was it was funny and they had kind of earned that mm-hmm. you know they they. Had presented a character that was well read enough that even when he did something as stereotypical as being a black man who pulls out a gun on a white guy, because he said he was about, he sounded like he was about to say the N word, you, you accepted it because it happened in a in the con in the context that it happened in. So, I am glad to see that people. I hear more and more that story that you just told, where people say, you know, I hung in there with Blackish and now you know I love it, or I didn't think I was going to like it, but then I watched a few episodes and I was hooked and. You know, to me, one of the hallmarks of the show, besides the fact that um, it deals with these these issues very well, is that everybody on the show gets to be funny. Yeah. The kids are funny. Lawrence Fishburne plays Anthony Anderson's dad. He's funny. I don't know the name of the actress who plays his mother, but she's really funny. Everybody gets great lines. Every character gets a little fleshed out, and they get to be funny. And when you see them all bouncing off of each other, it's just it, it's it's like Modern Family. Uh, except it, it involves an upper middle class black family, and so uh, m- that lesson to me is a specific point of view, saying something unique, and letting everybody on the show be funny. And then you look at Dr. Ken, and it is the opposite of those things. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like ABC, come on, you know, do I need to draw your diagram? Like apparently, yeah, I must. <laughs> yeah. So I will. I would. That's my next task when I leave this interview.
0: You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Janae Cummings. Our guest today is IU alum and NPR TV critic Eric Dagans. On November 7th, Donald Trump hosts Saturday Night Live. Um, it's the first time a leading presidential candidate has done so. And before we get to your opinions on the episode, which I'm very curious about, I'd like to <laughs> call back to your discussion with Michelle Martin about NBC's decision to put him at the center of their show.
1: I think that's a really good point. And in fact, when you look at NBC's history with Trump, they fired him as host of Celebrity Apprentice. And they also disentangled themselves uh, from his Miss USA and Miss Universe beauty pageants because of those comments that he made about Mexican immigrants. And now all of a sudden they have decided not only to let him be guest host on Saturday Night Live, but he's also going to take part in a town hall meeting that's moderated by the Today Show anchor Matt Lauer on Monday. So suddenly NBC. NBC has decided it's OK to get involved with Trump again. But what has changed? Those comments have not changed. And in fact, he has doubled down on them.
0: At the time he made those comments, um, Trump wasn't close to locking up the, the nomination. Um, and who's to say what will happen in the next few weeks? But why mend fences with him?
1: Because he's a ratings magnet. You know, after the episode aired, ratings figures came out. And obviously it was their uh, highest rated episode for uh, years, I think since 2012. But it's sad because it sends a very specific message, I think not just to Latino viewers, but to all viewers, that if a political candidate or a public figure can get themselves to the point where enough people will pay attention to what they do, then they can say things that are prejudiced and racist, and they will not have to pay a price for it. And indeed, the media outlets that initially shun them will come back hat in hand and ask them to to rejoin their efforts because they, uh, they draw an audience. And I, I have this sense... I mean, I know these are media executives and they are worried about the next ratings period, the next ratings report, the next advertiser they have to convince uh, to join the show... But in the case of Donald Trump hosting Saturday Night Live, they got this huge audience that showed up and saw a show that was uninspired, that was not funny. Uh, some of the performers seemed like they, they were in a hostage video with mm-hmm. this guy. And so you had the huge, the largest audience they'd had in years show up to see a terrible show. So what does that do for the future of your broadcast other than convince this huge audience – wow, you know, I thought this was going to be a big deal and Donald Trump's here and nothing's funny. You know, I'm not watching Saturday Night Live again, right. you know. So I, I think in the end it was counterproductive. And I thought to myself, I mean, I, I had opposed NBC's decision to feature him as guest host, not just because he had said these awful things about Mexican immigrants, but because I thought it set a bad precedent to take someone who was the frontrunner for a major party nomination and give them a 90-minute showcase on a network TV show. Even if there are supposedly equal time rolls, I mean, theoretically, uh, his opponents in the GOP uh, primary race can go to different specific television stations in markets where there is a significant campaign presence, so Iowa and New Hampshire right now, and ask for equal time. That is not the same as uh, Donald Trump. Being able to be featured on Saturday Night Live across the country on NBC, cracking jokes.
0: Well, and even when he wasn't on screen, his presence was felt. They were saying his name and and trotting out his beliefs and his and his his campaign views, which I'm not quite sure particularly what they are. But uh, his entire 90 minutes of Trump, even if we didn't see him.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and so that was a whole disappointing episode to me. I think it's going to backfire for SNL because in the past, SNL has earned their place at the center of the discourse about politics by doing effective satire, by coming up with an impersonation of Sarah Palin that was dead on exposing her vulnerabilities as a candidate, coming up with an impression of George W. Bush that was dead on, coming up with an impersonation of Al Gore that was perfect in sort of highlighting all the things about him that were strange and weird. And now... Because the front runners for the GOP nomination seem to be parodies of themselves, you know they just brought the guy on, mm-hmm. <laughs> right, and and did not um, provide any value added comedy to seeing Donald Trump on television on the Saturday Night Live stage, and so they haven't earned their way into that con- into that conversation, and so you know you got an evening of, uh, of comedy that was not funny, and and they earned themselves all this ill will. From not just Latino groups, but from, you know, progressive people who were horrified that they would elevate somebody who said the things that Trump would say. And I think even from people who are sympathizers with the Democratic Party who were horrified that they would elevate one candidate over others. So, you know, they created a situation where they angered a lot of people and then they didn't really produce anything of value other than one media moment that got them one bump in the ratings. Mm-hmm. So the whole thing just left a an awful taste in my mouth and you know I was going to live tweet it uh but I decided you know I'm I'm not going to give this the kind of sustained attention on my media platforms right. that would only feed into this further. Uh, I'm just going to sit back. I I put out a couple of tweets Uh, I I said basically that uh, I was convinced that the writers of Saturday Night Live staged a silent protest by basically not making any sketch on the show funny. (laughs) And then I had people um, on Twitter actually get in arguments with me saying, no, the show has always been terrible for years. And so, you know, if they were on strike, they started that strike like three years ago. It was, I think, a really unfortunate step. And I think it was taken with a certain obliviousness on how history is going to view this moment. Mm-hmm. And I've always had the sense that Lorne Michaels, the guy who uh, is the executive producer of Saturday Night Live and has been for a long time, that he had an eye on his legacy as a broadcaster. And so I was surprised to see that he would let his the end of his tenure sort of be marked by something like this. Uh, you know, we'll see. I mean, maybe it won't be remembered as vividly as we are all talking about it now, but... Uh, it's just it was just a sad and disappointing thing to see. I think.
0: Speaking of satire, um, we recently lost John Stewart, one of our our, our great media critics and mm-hmm. satirists. Uh, left The Daily Show. Um, do you think he bowed out a year too soon?
1: No, because I think it was obvious that he was getting tired of doing the show. What's interesting to me is that he has inked this new four year deal with HBO. Right. Well, not so new uh, now. That you know, very soon we will see him appearing on HBO in digital shorts um, that are supposed to be uh, released daily and updated regularly. So uh, we will get him back in some form very soon. But it was obvious if you watch the show uh, regularly, and and I'm someone who DVRs it every night and watches it uh, on a regular basis, that he had come back from... He'd take some time off to direct this movie, Rosewater, and when he came back... It was it was like somebody who came back to work after a long vacation to a job they'd been in for a long time. And you sort of got this, ah, here we go. And he did some good work after that. I'm not saying he didn't do good work, but I, there was a sense that I think he had kind of said everything he needed to say on the show and that he had discovered while doing that directing stint that being freed from the daily demands of the show was something that, I think he didn't realize how much he would enjoy that until he did it. Mm-hmm. And so I wasn't surprised to hear that he decided to leave not long after that. And then the shows got markedly better as he could see the finish line coming, I think. And I think that was important, you know, for him to have an end date and then to push towards that end date. It, it improved the shows. I, I felt like they got better after he announced that he was leaving. And and now he's handed off the torch to a group of mostly younger Um, satirists to let them figure out what the new iteration of the show should be and they're in the embryonic stages of that and I think it's going to take some while uh, a while for them to find their voice a new voice Mm -hmm. uh, for the show and uh, the best thing about it all is that we will get Jon Stewart back and he may have new ways of saying things and he'll be uh, in an environment where he can curse without worrying about being you know bleeped out and and he can push the boundaries of what he wants to say without worrying about advertisers or worrying about you know, standards and practices in the way that uh, somebody on basic cable has to worry about. So I- I'm excited to see what he comes up with.
0: Okay. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Janae Cummings. Our guest today is IU alum and NPR TV critic Eric Dagens. I'd like to transition from television to focus on print journalism for a moment, if you don't mind. Last year, ESPN closed Grantland, which is their revered boutique site uh, started by Bill Simmons. It blended sports, pop culture and current events. And I think what few may know is that there is a, quote, black Grantland mm-hmm. called The Undefeated, which was previously helmed by divisive sports writer Jason Whitlock. In November, that site was taken over by Washington Post Kevin Marita. I'm wondering if you can tell us what you think Marita might bring to the Post that Whitlock couldn't.
1: Well, first, I, I guess I have to give full disclosure that, you know, Kevin is a friend and, you know, I, I talked to him a, a fair amount about, you know, journalism issues and, you know, uh, you know, we've been friends for a while. So, I mean, not close friends, but, you know, uh, friendly enough that I have a really high opinion of him, have a really high opinion of his work. And I think if anybody can come to that website and make it what everybody thought it was going to be, uh, it would be him. Now, you know, I don't know Jason. I only know his work. And Mm -hmm. I I don't know, I don't follow his work very closely. Um, I do find him to be divisive. And I do find him to be somebody that sometimes pushes buttons uh, to push buttons. And I was always surprised that ESPN thought that someone whose greatest talent was figuring out ways to write columns that really touched people's nerves. Like how how they thought that person would be a great administrator and a great manager of talent uh, because those are very separate um, skills you know I worked in the print business for almost twenty years, and i've seen I've seen people who are great journalists be asked to be great editors or managers, and those are separate skills mm-hmm. so You know, I'm not surprised that that Jason had a a difficult time making that transition from being somebody whose main job was expressing himself every day to having his main job being helping other people to express themselves every day. Now, Kevin is somebody who has a long and distinguished track record doing that other thing, Uh, helping other people find their voice and helping mentor young writers, especially young, talented writers, and helping them raise their game. So I'm excited to see what he's going to do. And frankly, I'm a little perplexed that ESPN didn't do the same thing for Grantland. Mm-hmm. I mean, they brought in an interim editor, and that person had a hard time getting buy-in from the staff because they were an outsider. I understand we're all loyal that. loyal to Bill. But I think people felt like they were writing on the wall that, that ESPN had decided they wanted to be out of the Bill Simmons business and that Grantland was going to follow him – Uh, out the door in a way. I don't think that had to happen. And uh, I think particularly if Kevin is successful in turning around the undefeated, he's going to prove that they made a mistake. You know, brands don't come easy in this modern media environment. And whatever you want to say about Grantland and whether or not his traffic matched its rep in the industry and whether this is all about media nerds pining for some website that was never as good as we all said it was... Uh, I guess you could say all those things. But Grantland was a strong brand. And you could have recovered from what happened in losing Bill Simmons, I think. But for some reason, folks inside ESPN, you know, bailed on the notion. And to say that it wasn't personal and that it was just business, which is what John Skipper has been saying uh, in a Avanti- Vanity Fair interview, I am afraid I don't buy that.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you think ESPN – I find – this is just a personal opinion, but I find that ESPN often doesn't have the courage to really go there on certain issues, particularly those involving today's black community. Do you mm-hmm. think that they're they're willing to, to go down that path, or is this a site that could devolve into just what our athletes oh, are doing? Well, I think with,
1: with with Kevin at the helm, Not a problem. I don't think there's any doubt that they're going to go there uh, if they have to. But I do agree that ESPN's corporate culture, ESPN has always been a company that has tried to do many things at once. And on the one hand, they are actively involved in putting on sporting events with athletic organizations. So they are working with the NCAA, they are working with the NFL, they are working with the NBA to put on broadcasts that showcase these sports, while at the same time they own and operate journalistic entities that are trying to examine these athletic endeavors with a degree of journalism and a degree of incisiveness. And those clashing priorities sometimes don't meld very well inside the same corporate hierarchy. And I think ESPN and Disney have made it clear that when those priorities clash, what wins is what makes the most money. Now, that's not to say that ESPN doesn't try hard to do, to offer great journalism about sports, and they do. And they have a lot of great journalists who work for them. But those great journalists, I think, do often have to figure out how to negotiate um, that balance. And sometimes they win those battles, and sometimes those battles, you know, they may not lose them, but they, they may have to compromise a bit. So the question is, you know, what will the undefeated do? And will they be allowed to go wherever they need to go, even if they have to go somewhere that makes a corporate partner look bad or that makes uh, a, a presentation that might be showcased on ESPN look bad? You know, we'll see. That's, that's, that's something that you earn with experience. Mm-hmm. Certainly, Bill Simmons sort of ran a foul of ESPN in different ways, uh, more by being, I, I think, kind of trying to have as much autonomy as possible. Right a corporate structure uh, that sometimes is threatened by that. So we'll see. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. But a lot of people will be watching. And you have added layer of race onto what happens with the, un, with the undefeated. So if Grantland gets muzzled or gets hampered because of that, you know, it's bad enough. But if the undefeated gets hampered, uh, then you also have this sort of white-owned media institution not allowing... Uh, people who want to talk openly and 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 honestly about race, you know uh, not letting them do that and so uh it's interesting you know they have uh e s p n has written a a pretty big check and we'll see we'll see if they let the undefeated cash it
0: i 'm looking forward to it. In 2015, you were named one of five luminaries for IU's College of Arts and Sciences, which congratulations. A tremendous
1: mistake, I'm sure. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the luminaries program connects students with distinguished alum, like yourself, for advice and guidance. And I think there's a lot of talk that journalism, particularly print journalism, is dying, and it's not simply really moving online. What advice do you have for budding journalists, both at IU and across the country?
1: You know, one of the things I've said a lot when I'm talking to students here is that when I was in their shoes, and I was here from 1983 to 1990, yes, I was in the seven-year plan. When I was here, the big hurdle was getting published. You had to find somebody who was printing a magazine or publishing a newspaper or you know broadcasting something that would allow you uh, to, to go onto their platform and say what you had to say. Uh, now, uh, students don't have that barrier. Now the challenge is to figure out ways to monetize that, to, to get paid for the great journalism that you want to do. And so uh, what I'm often telling students is to be flexible, to have a plan, to have a sense of the kind of job you want to do, the kind of work you want to do, but be flexible about how you get there. Because when I was here, what I, my passion was I wanted to be an arts critic working for a national news outlet. Now, in my mind, at that time, that meant uh, writing about music for Rolling Stone or being a pop music critic at The Washington Post or uh, The New York Times. And I wouldn't let myself, like, just focus on The New York Times, but that's what I was thinking. You know, I wanted to be at one of these national, nationally known newspapers writing about music. And over time, as my career progressed, I realized that I was more interested in television than pop music. I realized that I was more interested in staying at the St. Petersburg Times slash Tampa Bay Times in Florida than I was in moving on to a national newspaper where my condition, my state of living was would be less uh, because of the cost of living and because of what I was getting paid and because who knows uh, when layoffs would occur at some of these places. And then the opportunity to go to NPR presented itself, and all of a sudden I was in radio Uh, at a time when I never thought that as a professional journalist I'd ever work in that medium. And so now uh, I've made the transition, and I'm working in radio, and I'm really enjoying it. And I'm getting to be an arts critic for a national news organization, but just in a way that I could never have envisioned when I was studying journalism at Indiana University. So I'm always telling students to know what your end goal is, but be flexible about how you get there.
0: While in Bloomington last November for a Luminaries event, uh, you joined a panel discussion with others called The Pursuit of Happiness, Finding a Career You Actually Enjoy. Mm -hmm. Would you mind telling us how you scored such a cool gig?
1: (laughs) Part of it, again, was being focused on this idea that I did want to do a job like that. I mean, I focused on that idea when I was in high school. And I aimed myself at that kind of job all through my high school, all through my college, and early in my professional career. So I was always writing about music when I could. I wrote for the Arbutus. I wrote for, I wrote for the Indiana Daily Student. I joined the feature staff as Ryan Murphy, the guy who co-created Glee and *Screen Queens and all these shows, as he was leaving. Uh, so you know, we were sort of ships passing in at night in an interest, interesting way. And I just made sure that I was getting the kind of experiences that would help me. Uh, I was in a band called The Voyage Band that was signed to Motown when we were here at Indiana University. I took two years off, we made a record with that group, and then when that um, sort of wound its way down, I I, I finished off my degree and I started my journalism career, but I moved into writing about music having had the experience of being a a major label recording artist, having had the experience of recording an album, having had the experience of playing in Japan with a band. And so I was able to relate to what professional musicians were doing in a way that I think a lot of pop music critics weren't because they hadn't done the job. So all of those things sort of led me to being a better pop music critic. And then when I decided to shift to television, um, there was an even wider palette to talk about. But I was still very focused on learning the TV industry, learning how TV worked, and talking about TV in a way that might be different than the way other people talked about television. And then finally, I've always been an NPR nerd, and so I ran into an executive from NPR at a journalism convention, and I sort of said to them, you know, I notice you don't really have a TV critic or sustained coverage of television, and you should have somebody who does commentaries about television. So after a while, they, you know, he kind of agreed and pitched him some ideas, and I did a few commentaries on spec, and before long I was in a schedule where I was doing three commentaries a month as a freelancer. And uh, that worked well for a couple of years. And so when a position opened up on the arts desk, the managers there decided, you know, let's see if we can hire a TV critic and how that'll go. And so far it seems to be going well, you know. Uh, I, I think they're happy with my work. I love making the transition to a new media platform. But again, it was sort of like I was always moving towards this goal. I just was open to... Uh, the opportunities that might arise that might not be exactly how I envisioned reaching that goal. And so that's a long way of saying, I guess, focus on a goal, work towards it, make sure you get the tools that you need to to produce uh, and to move towards it, but also be open to opportunities and taking chances and trying different things that are uh, outside of how you might have envisioned that that opportunity coming to you.
0: I've been speaking today with Eric Dagens, IU alum and NPR's first full-time TV critic. This is Janae Cummings for Profiles. Eric, thanks for joining us.
1: All right. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about Profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Pascash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles.